Uh, so raise your hand if you've ever been to Graceland. Uh, I figure we have a few of, me, if, of you here. The home of Elvis Presley, Graceland over there in Memphis. Uh, almost a million people make the pilgrimage to Graceland every year. It's an incredible place. I went there maybe 10 years ago, and it really is pretty magnificent. The sprawling estate, the, the, uh, the impressive mansion. You can even go into the jungle room. It still has the green shag carpet in the jungle room. If you pay a little extra on your ticket, you can even tour one of Elvis's planes that he owned. Uh, but what makes Graceland so fascinating is not so much the place itself, but the man, Elvis. Elvis was, in his prime, probably the most famous person in the world. It's kind of, it's, it's be hard to debate that. Uh, even now, 42 years after his death, his supposed death, 42 years later, <laughs> Elvis is one of the few people in the world still instantly recognizable on a first-name basis. If you say the, the word Elvis, everybody knows who you're talking about. Very few people can make that claim. But y'all, even, even at his height of fame, Elvis couldn't really even hold a candle to the man who wrote Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who was the king of Jerusalem in Jerusalem's most glorious time over Israel. Uh, Solomon, who the Bible says was the wisest man who ever lived. Uh, he was, at least in his time, more than likely also the wealthiest and most powerful man in the world. Uh, he was a man of such uh, prestige and acclaim that his reputation spread across kingdoms. Now, this was in a time before communication like we have. They, they had no internet, no television, no newspapers, nothing like that. And so for someone to be known the world over was incredibly rare. And yet people from all over the world would come just to witness and learn under Solomon and to see all that he had accrued in his wealth and his power. Anything he wanted, at the snap of a finger, he could have it. This is how powerful this man was. And what's really interesting, y'all, we get from Solomon a first-person account of all this. Very, very uncommon, in ancient times especially, would kings write their own autobiographies. And yet here we have Solomon telling us firsthand what it was like. Now he writes Ecclesiastes for a couple of different purposes, but one overarching purpose. Solomon wants to show us the world for what it really is. We introduced this idea last week when we looked at chapter 1. Solomon gave us a big picture view of how he understood the world, and he made very clear how he felt. He said that the world, that this life, was utterly meaningless under the sun under the sun. And when he uses that term, under the sun, that phrase describes a world without regard for God. Maybe God exists, but we don't live as if he exists. We root ourselves in this life, in this world. And Solomon says, if you do that, if you live for the here and now, if you live only for the present and not for eternity, Solomon says the outcome is meaninglessness, vanity, futility. It's chasing after the wind. And he makes a great case for that in chapter 1. If you weren't here, you can find our message on our website. I'd encourage you to study chapter 1 for yourself. Solomon makes an airtight case. Life is vanity apart from God. But now Solomon wants to get specific. It's one thing to give us a general view of all things, but now Solomon wants to approach the different things we search for when we're looking for meaning in life, value, significance, purpose. He says there are certain things that human beings are prone to reach for, to chase after, and he wants to get into the particulars now. So chapter 2 is all about pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, of delight, of enjoyment. 
And Solomon's going to approach this from every angle. He doesn't theorize here. This is a first-person experience. Look what he says. We just read it a minute ago, but look again at verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. So first thing in the pursuit of pleasure, Solomon says, I lived for the party. We see it. I lived to laugh and to socialize. I ate and I drank. Every night it was like Cinco de Mayo at El Sombrero for Solomon, okay? Uh, he's, He's talking about living for enjoyment, living for social events, living to laugh, living to be entertained, living to see and be seen, living to taste and indulge. A lot of us know what that's like. We've at least dabbled in it in our lives. But then he gives us the problem, and he states it up front in no uncertain terms. He says, I said of laughter, it's madness. Now, what does he mean when he says that? Is it good and right and even godly for us to laugh? I sure hope so. We need to laugh. Life wouldn't be much without some laughter, without humor in it, right? But you can't laugh your way through life. You can't make everything a joke. You can't live that way. Solomon says to do so is madness. Because all of life isn't funny. All of life is not meant to be enjoyed and laughed at. And people who do laugh at things, make jokes of things that that they shouldn't, those people become what we would call escapists. You escape reality. You try not to let anything affect you. You always try to laugh it off. Solomon says, that's madness. That's craziness. You can't do that. That's not how life really works. And, And it's interesting that all pursuits of pleasure work this same way, whether it be laughter or anything else. Any pursuit of pleasure, the more we seek it, the more we chase it, it has to become for us an escape. Because not all of life is pleasurable. Not all of life is enjoyable. And to seek that feeling through laughter and social events and and parties and wine, in this case, you have to become a denier of reality. You have to live in a way that doesn't reflect real life. That's why Solomon says, of pleasure, I said of pleasure, what does it accomplish? Now, again, Solomon's not saying that, that feeling pleasure is in itself sinful or bad, that all forms of pleasure are bad. That's not his point. But on its own terms, right, under the sun, on its own terms, Solomon says, pleasure is empty. What does it accomplish? What void does it truly fill and satisfy? Now, every, every earthly pleasure has one thing in common. It's temporary. I don't have to preach that or convince you of that. I know, you know it's true just like I do. Every earthly delight, every enjoyment, every pleasure is temporary. Anything that feels good or appeals to our senses, anything that makes us happy, generally those things are momentary. That's why we end up chasing more of it, whatever it is. Because it never lasts long enough for us. We're always left feeling like we want more, we need more. We have to chase more of that feeling. And what's worse, typically we have to chase more of it than what used to satisfy us before. We have to experience more of something because that something isn't as good as it used to be. Y'all, that, that's, that's true for a glass of wine. That's true for a substance you put in your body. That's true for entertainment. You name it. 
What used to satisfy me, I begin to become numb to that thing. And so every time I come back to it, I need a little bit more to satisfy. Isn't that true? Solomon says, what does it accomplish? Uh, It's a void that can never be sufficiently filled. It's a vacuum that continues to suck in but is never full. So Solomon says, I live for those things, those simple pleasures, and I say in the end, they're empty, right? Okay, okay. But Solomon moves on to bigger and better things. He doesn't stop this pursuit there. And here's what's really fascinating. Solomon is, is looking initially to social events and laughter and wine, right? But he's the king. He's got more capability than just that. Look what he does beginning in verse 4. Look how he seeks pleasure next. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Uh, Do you notice how everything there is in the plural? Solomon did not build a house. He built houses, vineyards, gardens, right? He had countless servants at his disposal. He even had professional musicians. Uh, Try to imagine being so wealthy and powerful that you could have your favorite band or your favorite performer on retainer, always available to you. You've got friends coming over, you just bring Michael Bolton right on out there and give him a show, right? You can do that because you're that powerful, right? And this was Solomon. He had everything, and he doesn't stop there. He had immeasurable wealth, both flocks and money, and he had all the women he wanted. He had a different woman every night if he so choose. Um, Now, y'all try to set aside for just a second the immorality of some of these things and consider Solomon's point. What's his point? Everything he conceived in his mind, he had the power to make it a reality. A lot of us, you know, we, we envision things, we wish and dream for things, but we can't do anything about it. Wouldn't it be nice to have this or that, to experience this or that? But there's nothing we can do to, to actually experience it. It's just a pipe dream for us, but not for Solomon. The ability for him to build, to accumulate, to possess, to be admired, to be sung to, to be desired, to be envied. He had it all. And there was no one like him. There was no rival to him. And he goes on in verse 9. He's not done. Verse 9, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Y'all, Solomon refused himself no pleasure, and it made him happy. At least for a time, it made him happy. It worked. He said, my heart was pleased. And we see why his heart was so pleased at the end of verse 10. Look at that again. This was my reward for all my labor. Okay. Solomon's not just talking about the pleasure of the senses, taste, touch, smell, and so on. He's talking about the pleasure of human achievement, the intoxication of achievement, my wealth, my houses, my greatness. This was his life. Now, 
right here is where I typically excuse myself from the application. Okay, some of these, you know, I, hey, I've been to parties. You know, I, some of these things I know about personally, but, oh, man, I, don't, I, I have a house. I don't have houses, right? I don't have gold and silver stored up somewhere. Uh, you know, uh, let the record show I have zero concubines. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know this kind of life that Solomon's talking about. Therefore, this doesn't apply to me. But, y'all, this applies not just to me, but to all of us, because the truth is, all of us, every single one of us, we are tempted to chase achievement. To chase achievement. And that achievement for you, it may be wealth, it may be status, it may be houses, plural. But it could also come in the form of less tangible things. It could be the achievement of simply having constant approval and applause and affirmation. Don't we all love that? It's an easy thing to chase after. It could be a deep need for my children to be successful. That's my achievement in life, if my children turn out well. So I've got to open as many doors for them as I can because I've got to see them succeed. It could be the perception that I want other people to have of me on social media. So I only post pictures and say things on social media that I think will get approval, that, I, that will make me enviable in the eyes of others. I want to be seen as somebody. That's a form of achievement. It could be for you a deep need to be at the top of the class or to be best on the team, to be awarded on some platform, to have your name in the newspaper or on the, on the internet. Right. All of us have this desire to achieve whatever that thing looks like in its tangible form. And y'all, this is an intoxicating temptation. It's something that sweeps up basically everybody in one, one form or another. It, it, it swept up Solomon, of course, in ways that we've never experienced tangibly, but it's the same root and heart issue. What he was desiring to make a name for himself, we all have that desire. Now listen, if you chase the feeling of achievement, no matter what that achievement is, if you chase that feeling, if you chase it for its own sake, Solomon has a word for you. He's got a word for me here. It's in verse 11. His conclusion, thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity, striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. You know what he's saying here? Solomon, the great Solomon, took everything he ever did, all of his experiences, all of his pleasures, all of these wonderful opinions that people had of him, all of his physical works and the things that he could see and touch for himself that he had built for himself. He says, I added all of it up, all of it, and I put it on the scale, and it was weightless in the end. It weighed nothing. It was nothing. Y'all, do, do we see what's happening in this chapter? Solomon is looking at pleasure from every angle here. He talks first about common pleasure. Things like parties and laughter and wine. Um, but then he experiences unique pleasures, things that we maybe only could dream about. Great wealth and achievement and power and fame. He's the envy of every person. But all of it, no matter what it was, whether good or bad, whether great or small, all of it ends up into the same vacuum. And that vacuum continues to run. Vanity, he says. All I was left with in the end was what I could see in the mirror. Chasing the wind worthless. And I hope we can see why. Y'all, this is a simple thing for me to say, but I want you to hear it. Pleasure 
for its own sake is not pleasurable. And all of us know it. Anybody who's ever lived for pleasure knows it. Pleasure, delight, enjoyment for its own sake is not all that pleasurable in the end. One, because it comes and goes so quickly and we're left empty and we've got to chase after more of it. We've got to experience it afresh again, right? But y'all, what's even worse is that the pursuit of pleasure on its own terms, those things under the sun that we seek for enjoyment, the pursuit of those things always brings disintegration. It always tears life down. It never builds up. It always uh, leads us, honestly, in the direction of sin. It always leads to sin. Uh, It did for Solomon. Y'all, Solomon gives us a clear indication here in his autobiographical book, But if you read his story in the Kings, the book of Kings, uh, Solomon led an ultimately very sad and despairing life. His life ended far from God, uh, not the way we would expect of such a wise and at one time godly man. But his life, once he got on into the pursuit of chasing pleasure, he found that that pursuit had no end. He never arrived at the goal. It always eluded him. It was always chasing after the wind, and eventually he died in a pitiable state. Y'all, if you chase a feeling, listen, whatever the feeling is, even if it's a very good thing, the feeling of seeing my children succeed, that's a good thing. But if I chase it, if you chase any good feeling, eventually that feeling will overtake you. If you chase it for its own sake. Now, what do I mean by that? The Bible gives us examples. I'm going to give you one that's very clear and abundant. If you open your Bible, you don't have to look very far before the Bible begins to talk about the issue of money. And I'm going to tell you something that Solomon said about the love of and the pursuit of money, the chasing of the feeling of money. And let's be honest before we look at it. All of us love money. Now, I know we're not supposed to, But all of us like the feeling of making money, of having money, of saving money, of spending money. It gives us pleasure. And to some degree, there's nothing wrong with that. But we all know what it's like, right? Because money's such a a common thing in our experience. But listen to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Uh, now remember, Solomon is speaking first person here. This is, he's speaking from experience. This is not theory. Why can't this man sleep? Why can't the rich man sleep? It's because his love for money has overtaken him. He loves the feeling of making and saving and spending. He loves the power and the acclaim that money seems to purchase for him. But that same love, that same desire, that same pleasure turns him inward and anxious and paranoid. It makes him insufferable. It ties him all up in knots because he's given his life to something under the sun. And deep down he knows it. He's putting his entire life into a vacuum that can never be filled. And y'all, you can apply this to any pleasurable thing. 
Anything that we chase after that will make us happy, if you love it, if you chase it, you will never be satisfied by it, no matter what it is. I keep coming back to this because it seems out of place. If I live for the achievement and success of my children, I'll never be satisfied with their success, and I'll always be worried that they'll lose it because my identity is tied into them in an unhealthy way. I'm chasing something that can't be satisfied, right? So whether it's money, whether it's something like that, whether it's sexual pleasure, whatever it may be, to chase it is to lose all feeling. Marie Antoinette, one of the richest women who's ever lived, she made a a statement one time, very simple. She said, nothing tastes. So wealthy, nothing tastes. Nothing satisfies. Um, Okay, so the obvious conclusion is that Christians, we should reject pleasure. We just shouldn't seek pleasure, right? No, not at all, not at all. Our problem is not that we seek pleasure. Our problem is that we seek it in the wrong place. It's that we're misdirected, we're misguided, it's misapplied. I want to show you guys a verse. Sometimes I'll tell you to memorize a verse. I don't know if you ever do that when I tell you to. Uh, please memorize this verse. It's real short, real simple, wonderful. Psalm 16, verse 11. Write that down. Psalm 16, verse 11. King David says to God, he says, You, God, will make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and in your right hand, Lord, there are pleasures forever. Did you hear that? In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. In God, in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Y'all, that is a disarming verse for a lot of us. Because I think most religious people have this mindset that pleasure itself is a bad thing. That God is against it. God is against our pleasure, our enjoyment, our happiness, and therefore we shouldn't pursue something like that. But y'all, the scripture is clear right here, among other places, the scripture tells us that God is the author of pleasure. He created it. It was his idea. There's no one in the universe more joyful, more delightful, more enjoyable than God. No one can hold a candle to him. He experiences more pleasure than all of us combined. Now, can I show you what I mean? Can I give you a little, in, a little insight, hopefully, into what I mean? Uh, Jesus mentioned Solomon two times, only twice. But the first time Jesus mentioned Solomon, very famous in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. If you're really quick, you can turn there, but I'm going to put it up for us. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 was telling us to stop being anxious about our basic needs. Don't worry about food or drink or clothing. And then he references Solomon, okay? And I'm going to show you what he says. Verse 28, Matthew 6. Jesus, talking to his disciples, to us, he says, Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? 
we've already seen the glory and the splendor and the, the wealth of Solomon. We've seen it in Ecclesiastes 2. But Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says, not even Solomon in all his glory could touch, could match the splendor and the beauty of a single flower in the field, a single lily. That's, that's high praise for a plant, isn't it? Something maybe we take for granted. But John, let me, let me do a little digging here. This is, Jesus is not making this point directly, but just think about this. What's the purpose of flowers? That Jesus would make a reference to the beauty of flowers. I'm sure, I know flowers serve some, some biological purpose, the bees and the pollination and things, you know, of course. But why, why, why not just one kind of flower? You know there are 400,000 different types of flower in the world, and they're all beautiful in their own unique ways? Why? Why so much variety? Why beauty? Why would Jesus single out the beauty of a flower in the field? What's special about flowers? Y'all, I, I don't know, but I have a suspicion that God populated the world with beautiful flowers simply because it gives him pleasure. I don't know if there's any practical purpose behind it that maybe I'm unaware of. Why do we need so much variety and beauty? Why do we need 33,000 different kinds of fish in the ocean? Why not just fish? One fish. If it's, if it's just pragmatic, if it's just practical on God's part, why do we have orange ones and blue ones? Why? Except that it gives him pleasure. It glorifies God to show us his creative brilliance for it to be perpetually on display for us. It makes him happy. And that's why something so temporary, here today, gone tomorrow, a lily in the field, could be so magnificent that even the kings of the earth could never touch it in all of their pursuit of majesty. One, one flower that God produced simply because it's beautiful and God delights in it. Y'all, God is pleased to adorn his creation with beauty. But here's Jesus' real point. If God so pleases to clothe the grass of the field like that, how much more will he clothe you? You see this? How much more pleasure does God take in you? How much more does God love and attend to and care for you and take care of you? God takes pleasure in his creation. He takes pleasure in us. That's his character. No one, I said this a minute ago, but nobody feels greater pleasure than God himself. He's not the old angry man that maybe perhaps we have envisioned him to be. He is constantly rejoicing over what he's made and what he's doing in this world. And therefore, no one can give greater pleasure than God. That's why David says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Not a little bit, but perfect joy, fullness. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever. Pleasures forever. See, y'all, our problem is not that pleasure is a bad thing and we're bad if we desire it. No, the problem is that pleasure is a very good thing that we have sought in ways that don't honor and glorify God. We've sought lesser pleasures when all the while God has offered us the real thing. That's the problem. 
Now, C.S. Lewis made this point about our misdirected pleasure. He says it so brilliantly. I'm just going to quote him here. C.S. Lewis said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making pies, mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. We seek pleasure in things that are not God, and therefore we end up perpetually empty and seeking more. That's our problem. Y'all, when I became a Christian, 16 years old, I became a Christian, and I can remember the moral list that accompanied that, the things I was supposed to now stop doing, right? Stop cussing, stop drinking, stop lusting, stop lying, stop hanging out with the wrong kinds of people. We all know the list. Uh, and y'all, there's good stuff on that list. I'm not, I'm not diminishing the list, okay? We, we need to understand and abide by righteousness and run from sin, of course, right? Um, but here's the problem. This was at least for me. I was told... Here are all the things, Kyle, you need to stop delighting in. Bad stuff. You need to stop enjoying it, stop delighting in it, stop finding pleasure there. But I don't know that I was ever told, Kyle, delight yourself in the Lord. I was told what not to do, but I was never given the replacement. I was never told that I could actually find true pleasure, real delight in Christ. And I think a lot of us could share that very same story, that God made us to experience infinite pleasure in him, not just one day in heaven, but even here and now. But so few of us, I think, have a concept of what that is, because in our mind, being a Christian is simple, simply one who loves God the best we can. We serve God. We try to obey God. We try to avoid the bad things, but we never really understood what it was to take pleasure in him, for our hearts to be overjoyed in him. I know for a lot of us that's a foreign concept and something we need to discover because it is thoroughly biblical. So how do we get there? How do you take the first step? Um, Y'all, I want to encourage you with another great verse, uh, two verses. I actually made reference to these last week. It's an endlessly deep scripture right here. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to put it behind me again. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Another good one to memorize. This one's a little longer. takes a little bit more work, but totally worth it here. Listen to what we're commanded. This is a way of life we're commanded here. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, chapter 11 tells us of the Old Testament saints who endured by faith and who now await us in heaven, the cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Every impediment, every barrier, every hurdle, everything that gets in the way of our pursuit of God, he says, lay it aside, make a clear path, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Uh, the, I, I'm going to give you two minutes on this. We could spend weeks on it, but listen. The command here is this, laying aside all that entangles us, which certainly includes every earthly pleasure that we don't find rooted ultimately in God. He says, push it aside and run. And run with endurance. That is to say, y'all, this is not an overnight kind of deal. This is not like flipping a light switch. If I find disordered love in my heart, I love lesser things that don't honor God. I pursue lesser pleasures that I continually chase after, hoping that they will fulfill me. Okay, listen, that love is not magically transformed with the flip of a switch. It's a, an enduring reality, meaning it's a day-by-day-by-day-by-day pursuit. Okay? Be encouraged in that. But how do we run? He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That does not mean attend church when you can, do some good, read your Bible when you need it. He says, fixate your life with laser focus. Make Jesus your ultimate treasure and run to him and do not take your eyes off him. That is a life of loving, delighting pursuit. And y'all, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, listen, day by day, enduring, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, there is a pleasure that accompanies that. There's a joy, a delight, an enjoyment that accompanies that because we have sifted through now all of the lesser and maybe even sinful pursuits of pleasure, and we have focused on the one in whom he offers pleasure forever the one in whom there is fullness of joy simply because we have his presence. We have fixed our eyes on Jesus. Do you know how I know that he will grant you this pleasure? Because of what Hebrews 12, 2 tells us. That for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Y'all, that is such a strange phrase. How could he endure a cross and it bring him joy? How could Jesus find any pleasure in the cross It was the pleasure of what awaited him, of what was set before him, the promise of what his sacrificial death would bring, the salvation of sinners. Do you know what Jesus said? There is more joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. All of heaven throws a party when one person turns to Jesus and receives his grace. That was the joy set before him that allowed him to endure the pain of the cross. And when we fix our eyes on him, that joy, his joy, becomes our joy. The more you press in to Jesus, the more you consider who Jesus is and all that he's done for you, the the deeper we dig into that reality, the more overwhelmed with joy we become. The more the earthly pleasures that surround us lose their, their flavor because we found the real thing in the one who was overjoyed to give himself for you. And then Hebrews 12, 2 says, He ascended then to the right hand of the Father. Where do all the pleasures of God forever come from? David says, His right hand. I'm not going to try to read too much into this, but listen. Because Christ is at the right hand of the Father, dead on our behalf and raised to eternal life for us, all of God's promises are certain. All of God's pleasures are now ours given freely to us, 
simply because we are in Christ. Y'all, we need to recognize and delight in this truth that Jesus loved us enough that it actually gave him joy to die. Because through his death, he could give us life. And now that life provides for us a pleasure unlike anything that we could find in our greatest imagination. Solomon went through the trouble of experiencing tangibly. He knew what it was like. He tells us the answer, meaningless. Don't go looking for what you can't find when what we have in Jesus Christ is everything. Let's pray. Father, would you, I pray this morning, would you forgive me for my constant pursuit of pleasure and delight and happiness in temporary things. And just help, help me and help all of us right now to be honest that I, I wake up every morning reaching, chasing, seeking. Always looking. What's new on Amazon? What's new on Twitter? What's new to laugh about? What's going what's gonna to fill any void that I have in my life? There's something out there for me. Lord, show me, show us this morning that, that that's born out of a, a failure to see what we have in you. It's not just bad stuff. It's not just empty stuff, Lord. It's, it, it takes us away from, from infinite joy. And so, Father, give us the grace this morning to fix our eyes on Jesus, who does not offer us uh, a quick rush, who does not just help us make it through the day, who does not just put entertainment in front of our face. No, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. who loved us and gave himself up for us, that we might be children of God and that we might enjoy you forever. Lord, where we have, where we have committed ourselves to lesser things, um, Lord, let today be a turning point that we begin the enduring race, the enduring run, the day-by-day-by-day fixation on you that puts everything else in the periphery. Um, Lord, disarm us with this truth. Pleasure's good. You created us for it. But only and truly to find it in you. And so help us to see it. When we look to Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that we would feel thankful, that we would feel motivated to follow him, that we would feel all sorts of good and appropriate feelings. But Lord, I pray that we would not neglect pleasure, delight. Perhaps that's a new concept for us, Lord, but let us find it in Christ because he gives it in full. We ask it in his name. Amen.